Hello and welcome. My name is Amrita Dhar and I am the director of the project Shakespeare in the Post Colonies, which is hosting a series of interviews with post-colonial Shakespeareans from around the world. pilot conversation of this series, I speak with my collaborators and co-principal investigators for this project, Professor Adeleke Adeko, who is also my colleague here at The Ohio State University, and Dr. Omrita Shain of the University of Calcutta about the origins of this project, about our extended engagement with Shakespeare, and about our common commitment to matters of justice, equity, and post-coloniality. Leke and Amrita Dee, would you mind introducing yourselves, please? Thank you, Amrita. Thanks for putting this together. My name is Leke Adeko. I teach in the English department at Ohio State. And I also teach courses in Africana studies. And I am Omrita Sen. I am associate professor and deputy director of the UGC HRGC University of Calcutta. And I am affiliated faculty with the Department of English as well as the Women's Studies Research Center at the University of Calcutta. We've come together today across different parts of the world and very different time zones to have a discussion about what Shakespeare means today in the 21st century for us in places and spaces of post-colonial inheritance. I want to start, Leke, by asking you, you are a scholar of post-colonial studies. Can you tell our listeners what post-colonial studies is please. What is post-colonialism? What is post-coloniality? I chuckled when you were asking the question because I've read so many books on the topics. There are books and books on what is post-colonialism, what is post-coloniality. It's really, really difficult to say one that post-coloniality is this as opposed to that. I always tell students that when you see the question, what is that should tell you that a lot of things is left out. But what I always settle on as the central themes, I always rely on Gayatri's Piva, her book on the critique of post-colonial reason. I always go back to that book because of the way I read it, she introduces some terms that cuts across post-colonialism as an ideology or as a pedagogy or as a way of, of approaching texts across time from Chaucer to Grotowski, or as a political reading of a particular set of texts at a particular set of time in Anglophone or Francophone or areas that used to be occupied by Europeans. So for example, African-American, African literature, South Asian literature, Indian literature in post-colonial literatures. And sometimes I include New Zealand because they are also post-colonial. We could also include Australia as post-colonial locations. 
And when we study that works, we could study them as postcolonia. But the three axioms that I took from Gayatri Spivak sanctioned ignorance, the ignorance of Europeans, of colonizers who visited those places, who knew nothing, and started with ignorance and privilege that ignorance as important. They didn't know about Australians and they made grand statements about Australians and said they are not like us. They didn't know about India. They made grand statements about India and Africa. So that section of ignorance is a major topic in post-colonial studies, whichever we would think about it. She also speaks of the creation and foreclosure of the native informant. Native is an invention of colonizers. The natives didn't call themselves natives. So now when you create this native, but you create them as a way of moving on so that you can carry on with what you want to do because you don't grant them any recognition other than you invented them. So nothing legal can proceed from them. Nothing permanent, nothing essential can come from them. So you create and foreclose the native. Then when you create and foreclose them, then you make them other. <laughs> they're, they're different, permanently different. And when you create that so that you can govern, but in the process of doing that, the native actually spoke back. So it's that contest of creating, not creating knowledge, people, interactions. And as far as Spivak is concerned, it's not just, it's not just those spaces. It goes into Kant. You'll find post-coloniality in Kant, the, the princes of enlightenment philosophy. Uh, you'll find it in Marx. You found it on Freud. She found it in Derrida. I find that very, very encouraging, our, our approach. Very encouraging in that, and not even to talk of Shakespeare or the romantic writers. So she extended, she allowed post-colonial studies, post-coloniality to be far more encompassing and more incriminating of, of, of European ventures in other places. Thank you. And for our listeners who might not be acquainted with the debates in the field or even about the emergence of the field of post-colonial studies as such, you are a more senior scholar than I am. I am an early career scholar. You are a more senior scholar than I am. For these listeners, can you talk a little bit about your trajectory as an academic and a scholar in post-colonial studies. It wasn't even always called post-colonial studies. Now, there is a distinction that we make between post-colonialism and post-colonialism, all one word without a hyphen. Can you talk about this emergence of the field of post-colonial studies and that distinction between post-colonialism and post-colonialism, please? Post-colonialism with hyphen generally relates to what used to be called literatures in English in places other than U.S., North America, and England, like British Commonwealth. That's what, that is post things that came after colonial ventures in those places. That's the one with a hyphen. And whatever the reaction, the debates that developed out of that interaction or domination of other people. Then there is the one without hyphen. That's the one 
that was summarizing earlier that occupation, domination, taking other places in terms of global historical development started at a point that its effect is not just lived in the British Commonwealth or those other places that you will find it in England itself, that it includes to understand post-colonialism without hyphen, one will have to look for, to study, for example, Daniel Defoe, Robinson Crusoe, the founding text in the development of English novel, with an, a story that is, I mean, cut through from the beginning to the end with colonial ventures, stories that Europeans told themselves so that they wouldn't have nightmares of what they did to other people. Without hyphen, you incriminate Kant, Immanuel Kant. Without hyphen, you incriminate Marx. And Marx was not a colonizer. Marx did not go to, Karl Marx did not endorse colonialism. But some of his thoughts are influenced by, by things that dominate colonial studies. So with a hyphen, that's historical. History specific. Without hyphen, it becomes a thought, a general body of thought that grew as a result of global interaction. That's very helpful because that kind of capacious critical analytic is indeed what our project is grounded in. I want to turn this conversation now to you, Amritadi. The name of the project that we have, Shakespeare in the quote-unquote post, post being within scare quotes, Shakespeare in the quote-unquote post-colonies, we thought about this name precisely because we wanted to signal something about this post or after of colonialism being rather suspect, rather not true that colonialism is fully over and now we are in post-colonial days. Can you talk a little bit about the quote-unquote post-colonies as a distinct category for thinking about our work with Shakespeare? Right. One of the things I think that the other term that we're not also talking about, which is somewhere at the back of our minds continuously throughout this project, is of course questions of decolonization and questions of decoloniality. And as some of the major scholars and theorists of decolonization and point out that the post of post-colonialism is also somewhere or the other implicated with neo-colonialism. Yeah. And we are talking about geographies and polities that are not homogeneous, that perhaps never were homogeneous that are now structured around nation states, not just in the erstwhile colonies. I think this is really important to remember, and I'm thinking here of Mark Metzloff's wonderful book, England's Internal Colonies. And so these sort of fractured marginalized entities within erstwhile colonial spaces, but also within the metropole itself is also something that needs to be confronted, needs to be acknowledged. 
and i think it is this complex political as well as economic trajectory that we were talking about and thinking about and how shakespeare enters into this conversation because in some geographical locations like india for instance shakespeare transmission was associated with the transmission of english language and was intended to create a new class of indians a more privileged class of indian and this class of course still survives and continues i would argue that you know both you and i are members of this class and this is our legacy right the fact that we have learned how to curse is perhaps evidence of a lesson well taught but then the other question is that what about other groups other sections that were not part of this intended new class is shakespeare relevant for them at all and i suspect that these questions of political disenfranchisement not just true of india but that of other global polities and i'm deliberately avoiding the term nation here because nation is just one type of imagined community but i think our project and the interviews that we are conducting is aimed precisely towards unpacking or at least disrupting some of our common notions about the post colony and the post colonial condition that brings me very nicely to my next question you are a scholar of early modern studies and you specialize in shakespeare studies as a scholar of early modern english literature and of shakespeare studies what would you say are the main questions today in the field of shakespeare studies where is it now this project is being held at the ohio state university and we have to admit that the big center of power for shakespeare studies is very much still along the us uk axis so what are the main questions both in this us uk axis and in other parts of the world such as south asia which we both come from and which is where many of our urgencies for this project first emerged for us right so to begin with around the 1980s there was the first shift within the field of what was then known as renaissance studies and it coalesced quite well with the new impetus towards postcolonial theory and we have the first postcolonial lens that is turned to the early modern period not just emesis air talking about caliban but sustained theoretical approach and so you have anya lumba kim hall amongst a host of other amazing scholars who just to travel literature turn to travel narratives bring in a plurality of texts that mess up in a really good way the field so to speak we are 
seeing something similar now with race before race and the larger renewed need to engage with questions of race to questions of colonialism in the Alban period. And actually going back even to the Middle Ages, right, and to look at colored bodies during this period. My own project, of course, you know, yes, I'm a Shakespeare scholar, but I'm also someone who looks specifically at representations of the East Indies and the early East India Company during this period. So my own work specifically is very post-colonial. But I think Shakespeare studies has the other side to it uh, that early modernists also actively engage in, and that is the Shakespeare adaptation. And here I would say that when it comes to the subfield of global Shakespeare's, which has really come into its own over the past several years, the rhetoric is largely dominated by certain geographical regions, including South Asia, actually. And I would love to hear more voices in global Shakespeare's from the underrepresented uh, geographical areas. But when it comes to the global access, but in Shakespeare adaptation studies, then I'm really not sure where the center lies. I mean, yes, definitely Anglo-America, but then the really strong nodal points in South Asia and East Asia, actually, where really amazing archival work is being done. So I think there are twin aspects to, to being an early modernist. We have our two feet into very different centuries, the early modern and then the contemporary period. Yes, this is perhaps why we are in a rather exciting moment, in a way, for undertaking this project. I want to ask now, for all of us, we are all people of post-colonial inheritance. And we all grew up and did our college educations in very different parts of the world. Schools here in the U.S., I am sitting in central Ohio right now, schools in the U.S. often carry a very serious Shakespeare component. But I, Amritadi, you and I, we grew up in Calcutta and we did our undergraduate studies at Jadavpur University in West Bengal, India. Leke, you grew up in Ijebu division of Ogun State and did your undergraduate studies at Obafemi Awolowo University in Ife, Nigeria. Yet all of us with our childhoods and early adulthoods elsewhere, not at The Ohio State University, where this conversation is being hosted right now. We have all had an introduction to Shakespeare long before we came to participate in the U.S. Academy. Leke, let me ask you first, can you talk about what your Shakespeare journey has been like? And could I ask you to reflect on this particular bequest of colonial education? It's a long story for me. But I remember vividly that it was a book prize, you know, schools and where they tell you you're good. Yeah, and I received the book prize 
in primary three, what we call third grade in American dialects. And the book is titled Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. That's the title of the book. Nigeria was already independent by the time I went to school. Nigeria became independent in 1960. So primary three, the third grade, that was 1966 for me. At the end of the school year, I got that book as a prize. And actually this morning, I went online to Google whether it's a real book or I just imagining it. And actually the book exists. But the one that was given to me as a first prize in that school year had abridged narration, abridged retelling of Shakespeare stories. I remember reading that over the Christmas break before school resumed for the fourth grade. In high school, Shakespeare is required as part of the literature curriculum. I remember reading Macbeth. I remember for the O-level, we had to read Julius Caesar. For A-level, it was Trailers and Cressida. I don't even remember anything about that anymore. <laughs> so at every level of education, this was decades after Nigeria's independence. Shakespeare was required as part of the literature curriculum. By the time I got to college, things were already changing because if a, if there was a radical campus, very radical, especially the literature department, it's like what happened in Nairobi in 1971 when they wanted to abolish the English department. If I did not abolish the English department, but created the Department of Literatures in English so that they moved all literature out of English department and moved them. So European literature, English literature became just one of the literatures. So by that time, Shakespeare was no longer central in college. Because I did a double degree in education and English, we still had to take classes in Shakespeare because you are going to teach high school. So you still need to learn Shakespeare for those kids you are going to teach when you leave the university. So that's been my story. It's still that actually if I told, should be called this post-colonial post as after colonization and the effect on curriculum. That was a major debate in the what you now call post-colonial world, uh, at least in the global south. I think if I was the third, that was 1977, if I was the third institution to create a department of literature and language. I think there was one in Australia, there was one in Nairobi, that if it was the third, that there are reversals now. So that's been my story as something you have to absorb and there's something you are trained to reject. So it's both, it's like a poison that kills. That's been my experience, something that kills that also kills. That's been my experience of Shakespeare through schooling. And I'm not sure we can escape that legacy. This, there's this book, The Example of Shakespeare, written by one Nigerian playwright. He's deceased now. He writes in the classical mode, but he argued in that book, The Example of Shakespeare, that actually Shakespeare gave the language of verisimilitude to African novels in English. So that whatever from Machebe to anyone, that you have to trace the use of language they, they approach them to Shakespeare's use of English, and you cannot avoid it as long as you use English as a literary language on the African continent. Wow. So who, who I'm is... not sure Shakespeare is going to go away. No, no. John Pepper Clark, then I think towards the end of his life, he added uh, as his ijo 
ethnic, ethnic name, John Pepper Clark Beckederamo. He wrote many plays, yeah. And also, it was a very fine poet, too. That's fascinating. And it brings me back to how things are at this moment at our university, where you and I, Lake, work, where Shakespeare still is a requirement of the degree of the major in our discipline, in our department of English, and the fact that students who are training in English and education continue to have a Shakespeare requirement because they too will have to know certain things in order to teach. Amritabhi, what has your journey in Shakespeare been like? You and I are closer generationally. And of course, in geography, there is so much that we share. Can you talk a little bit about what your journey in Shakespeare has been like, please? So actually, I remembered reading uh, Charles and Mary Lamb's version of Shakespeare. Like, just listening to you. But it was in school that we started reading Shakespeare, the original text, or even if not initially original text, then texts that were simplified, but still kept more of the language of Shakespeare in place. And this would be around class seven, eight, when we were reading the best properly. And we had an amazing English teacher who would let us run wild with it, which really helped. The education board that we were following was West Bengal's own indigenous educational board, where if you were in a government school, then English would be taught when you started sixth grade. And so, in our class 10 exam, the English was really very basic, like simple grammatical sentences and things like that. But I, of course, had not been sent to a government school, but was actually sent to one of the most privileged of the girls' schools in the country. It is still the same. And so I learned my ABCDs before I learned my Bengali alphabet. So my school, of course, embarked on a path of dual curriculum, I think would be the best way to phrase it. So they would follow the really whittled down English just to ensure that we would be able to appear for our board exam. But then we had to read Julius Caesar in the original. And I remember getting my first copy of Spencer's Fairy Queen in the original as, again, prize for English in school. So they were really serious about this. So in way before I got into university, we already had a fair, fair dose of, of English literature and of Shakespeare. And ironically, once you cleared your class 10 and you were in 11, 12, again, this is under the West Bengal education system, you could choose between English A and English B. And English A is basically pre-college 
English. And it, it was basically a preparation for a full-on English honors syllabus. So it was like a huge leap. And obviously that's what we all opted for because that is what we had been trained for. And so transition into college, into university, at that point did not seem that artificial at all. But yes, my, my, my school carried on this dual curriculum where it George that no, not just Shakespeare, but you know, and other figures of the English literary canon were also taught. And of course, all of this was, was going on when West Bengal was under a very different government. And there was a, a lot of emphasis on vernacular learning. But obviously, as we all know, the questions of class and access and privilege also entered into whenever we're talking about language of instruction. We were actually punished if we spoke Bangla during school hours, apart from the 40 minutes reserved for vernacular class. I don't know whether your experience was the same in school. Was it? In North America, native people who have lost entire languages talk about this all the time, that they were meant to lose their linguistic inheritance. And they were taken away from their families. You and I, we did not go to residential schools. The violence is no. not at all that no. extreme. No. But it's... Right. And, and of course, I hear what you say. And what complicates this even further was that then in the course of our 40 minutes of vernacular that we were getting from school, we were expected to know Bong Kim Chandro and Mignat Bodh and read all of that in the original so as not to lose out on the vernacular literature. But my question, of course, is how do you imagine that these young girls would manage to get to the bottom of that amazing body of literature if you only devoted like 40 minutes out of an entire school day to the language? I think those of us who learned the language and learned the literature learned it because of other reasons, which reminds me, my father actually took French for his school exams, for his board exams, rather than Bangla, because my grandparents weren't quite confident that Bangla was up to scratch, so he learned French instead. And my mother, who had a completely different upbringing, was the one who brought in Bengali literature and Sanskrit into all of that. Because of my mother, those were the things that I was exposed to from a very early age, because my mother couldn't sing, she would recite Sanskrit poetry to me at bedtime. I sometimes wonder about this on my own behalf. How is it that I came to own Shakespeare and I think 
a big part of it is language that I did not come to Shakespeare first in his language. I came to Shakespeare first in mine. So by the time I went to college for English honours, you and I both did English honours at Jadavpur University for undergraduate studies. By the time I came to do my college education and learnt about Shakespeare as a 16th and 17th century person living in early modern England with his professional life in London and so on, my basic emotional response was very well, that's good for him, but Shakespeare is still mine. I know what I need to do with my Shakespeare. Shakespeare was mine in a way that was inalienable because of the introduction that I had had with Shakespeare and also at the same time, someone like Mohasheta Debi, someone like Bonkim Chondro, just how intermeshed everything became. If you enjoyed this conversation, Please subscribe to this podcast, spread the word and leave a review. Do take a look also at our project website at shakespearepostcolonies.osu.edu for materials supplementing this conversation and for further project details. Thank you for listening and until next time. For the Shakespeare in the Post Colonies project, I am Amrita Thor. Mm-hmm.